Morning. Morning. It's first weekend in December, so uh, if you haven't heard it, let me be the first to say Merry Christmas. I asked uh, the first service, how many of you have all your gifts purchases? And there was only one person. One, two, three, four. Oh, look at that. Prepared people. Karen's got all her gifts purchased. Did you buy mine? You did. Where is it? <laughs> I don't remember putting that one under the tree. I put all the gifts under the tree. Karen had shoulder surgery, so she can't carry very much stuff. But I've got all but one purchased, um, too. So It's a great month. It's a, it's a month where we celebrate together the, the coming of Jesus uh, to rescue us, really. And uh, so I hope it's a great season for you. Hey, we're in our series. We're continuing today called Family Spirit. And for weeks now, we have been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. Uh, what the Holy Spirit does, who he is, how he was promised to them. And, and we've also been looking at what that means for us today. How the Holy Spirit is to be at work in our lives. What it means to, to be filled by and continually empowered by the Spirit and, and for a couple weeks now, we've camped out in a particular passage at the end of chapter 2 in the book of Acts. And we're looking at what we're calling the devotions. Luke gives us this description at the end of chapter 2 of what the life of the early church looked like. If you remember, uh, there were thousands of believers who responded to the first gospel message that was given by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And so all of these brand new believers were living life together. And Luke describes what that life looked like. In, in verse 42 of chapter 2, he says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A couple weeks ago, Jim talked about how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, they didn't have the Bible back then, so the teaching of God's Word, the New Testament, came through the apostles. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have printed Bibles like we do. It was taught. Very few people had anything written in those days. We have the Bible. So Jim talked about both being devoted to the teaching that comes to us through this type of teaching or other means of Christian teaching and also our own devotion to spending time in God's word. He also talked about being devoted to the fellowship last week, what it looks like to be devoted to uh, koinonia. Now, I want to pause for a minute and talk about this term devoted to because I think sometimes when we hear this description of what the early church looked like, what we what we hear is they did these things well. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, and to prayers. And, and that meant that they were accomplished at these things. But when Luke uses this term, uh, they were devoted to, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that they did these things well. The word being devoted to means they... They were persisting. They were persevering. 
That's what being devoted to means. It means persistence in, persevering in, going after something continually. It doesn't mean you've arrived. It means you keep on pursuing this thing. That's what it means that they were devoted to these things. And today, as we look at the third part of this, we're going to look at the fact that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread in the original language that that Luke wrote this account in, which is Greek, uh, has a dual meaning. The breaking of bread can mean both communion, the celebration of Christ's uh, death on the cross, and and the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could be forgiven for our sins. But it also means a common meal. It means sitting across the table from somebody else and sharing some food together. It means both. And and so when you look at the commentaries of what Luke meant by this, it's hard to determine whether he meant one or the other. It, It actually probably means he meant both. It's probably hard for us to picture because we celebrate communion differently. Uh, When we do communion as a church, we have it as a separate part in a church service. They didn't do it that way. Communion for them was shared as part of a meal. They sat down to eat together, and part of that meal would include communion. Now, they didn't have communion at every single meal, and we know that, that they weren't just devoted to having communion as part of their meal. They are also devoted to just sharing meals together. And we know that's true because Luke continues in this description of what the early church looked like. And a couple verses later, he says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And when you look at the original language, the context is is important and and what Luke means here for sure is that they were just having common meals together. They were eating together. Uh, last week we talked about this idea of fellowship. Uh, the, the word there is koinonia in the original Greek and that means a, a sharing together, a sharing of life together, a sharing of ourselves together. And that's really what this breaking of bread is. Breaking of bread is fellowship or koinonia in action. It's just an outworking of what it looks like to be connected together as family, that we eat together. All through the Bible, if you just read through the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, you will see that eating together is a big deal with God. Over and over again, as God issues an invitation to you and I to come into relationship with him, he uses the language of eating together as an example of what it means to be in relationship with God. But it isn't just figurative language. In practical, outward experience, God has designed his people to eat together. There were all these worship feasts or festivals that God instituted for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There were times when they would gather together as a nation and they would would commemorate the things that God had done. 
But part of that was a a meal, a feast together, sometimes a week of feasting together. Eating together is a big deal with God. I just want to give a few scriptural examples of, of what this looks like in the Bible. One of those is found in Isaiah. God is calling us to come to relationship with him. And he says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God is using this picture of eating together with him as an invitation to come into relationship with him. One of the the feasts that God instituted for the children of Israel was Passover. You've probably heard of that before. It commemorated their deliverance from the, the slavery that they were under in Egypt for hundreds of years. Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And, and you may remember that that picture of him in the upper room and the teaching he did and washing their feet, that was all around the Passover meal. Right before that meal, which was immediately before his crucifixion, Jesus said this to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus wanted to sit down with his friends across the table and share this meal with them. Yeah, there was stuff he wanted to teach, but he wanted to be with them and eat together with them because it's a big deal eating together. As God invites you and I as his children into an intimate fellowship with him, he uses these familiar words which picture eating together again. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You probably know this, but, but maybe you don't. In heaven, did you know we're going to eat? I know. We are going to eat together. There is a banquet, a feast in heaven. Now, you don't need to eat in heaven. It's not like you're going to starve to death in heaven if you don't eat. There's there's no more physical need for you to eat, but God has instituted eating together in heaven because it's important. And as he describes this meal, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's found in Revelation. And he goes on to talk about what heaven will be like, that God's going to wipe away every tear. And, And there's a parallel passage found in Isaiah which says almost the same things, but there's a section in there that talks about what this meal is going to look like. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Basically, this is going to be the best gourmet meal you have ever eaten, and we're going to share it together in heaven. So why, why is eating together such a big deal with God? 
It's really not that complicated. You see, God is relational. And eating together is relational. And all of us know this intuitively. I mean, I don't know what your past church experience has been, but a lot of churches do the handshake thing, you know, where you say, hey, turn to the person next to you and shake their hand or introduce yourself, and then, and then they stop and they go on with the service. Now, we've extended that here. And so for five minutes, we say, get up and talk. And, and some of you hate that <laughs> because it requires something more relational of you than you're comfortable with. It's altogether different if you were to say, hey, let's grab lunch together. Why don't you and I go out to coffee together? Why don't we go grab dinner together? You know, let's go to Boston's. Let's go to Red Robin and and let's share a burger together. That's a whole nother realm of relationship, isn't it? It's deeper. It requires more connection. It's an even deeper relationship. If, if we were to say, hey, why don't you come over to my house? Or you were to say, hey, Tim, come on over and we'll share a meal together. Which is what the early church was doing. They were devoted to breaking bread. Which meant they were persistently pursuing eating together as an expression of this koinonia life. They kept at it. You know what? The New Testament church, maybe you don't know this, but they weren't all extroverts. (laughs) A lot of them were probably just like you. But they kept at it. They pursued it. Now, when you think about the way this is described, that they were day by day in each other's homes, that they were constantly sharing meals together, And you think about where we are and how we do it today. Eating together has changed, hasn't it? A lot. Not just from the way it is now to the way it was 2,000 years ago. I mean, if you just look at the recent history of the United States, let's say let's go back 60 years to the 60s. Eating together has dramatically changed. Did you know that 60 years ago, that the average family dinner lasted an hour and a half? Yeah, some of you are going, I can't imagine. (laughs) I remember that. Sunday dinner after church, we'd go home and we'd sit down and, and we were there for a long time. There was conversation, there was interaction, there was food that you actually took time to eat. And then there was dessert at every meal at our house. But, but there was this extended time of eating together. Do you know how long the average dinner in America, dinner together, takes today? 12 exactly. 12 minutes. Nice guess, Alicia. That's probably your experience, isn't it? It's most of our experience. Uh, Eating together has changed a lot. Did you know that one in three Americans look at their phone while they're eating? And 
72% of Americans watch TV while they're eating. Um, I'm sure this is the other two-thirds as far as the phone goes. You guys would probably never look at your phone while you're eating, right? It isn't the same. It isn't the same. These people, this early church, spirit-filled, spirit-led, doing life together in the way that God has designed the church to function, ate together regularly. And as I thought about this message and I thought about what God would call you and I to, I could just say, hey, we need to eat together more. But I, as I thought about that, I immediately thought of my own objections. It's like, I have a hard time eating together with my own family. Karen and I always watch TV together when we eat our dinner. Uh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to eat together more? How am I going to have more people over and share meals together? And I began to think of time and, and experience and all of the objections that come to mind when I think of let's just eat together more. And I really felt like God wanted me to communicate that this is way bigger than eating together. And the reason why is because what we're given here when we're looking at this passage and we're looking at the description of what the early church looked like is we're looking at the ideal picture. It's the ideal picture. This is how the church is supposed to function. This is when a group of people are empowered by the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit. This is the way the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to function. Uh, maybe you aren't familiar with the rest of the description of the early church. We haven't read the whole passage, so I want to do that. I want you to listen to this picture of these early believers, Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Luke writes this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You're looking at the ideal picture. I want to ask a question. When you look at God's ideal, what do you see? What do you see? 
let me flesh out that question with, with just an illustration here. Uh, how many of you, go ahead and put up that picture. How many of you know what this is? Put up the next picture. Some of you probably will get it. What is it? Yeah, the Grand Canyon. How many of you have you've stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and, and been able to look at it? A lot of you. It's amazing. Did you know that the Grand Canyon is 277 miles long? So, I uh, mapped this on Google the other day. If you went out here and you got in your car in the church parking lot and you went south on I-5 and then you got on I-90 and you went east and you went over the mountains and you continued on to the Tri-Cities, Richland, Pasco, and then you went past the Tri-Cities, you would continue on until you got to a little town called Hermiston, which is right on the border it actually is where the Columbia River is that separates Washington and Oregon. That's 274 miles from here. And so if you actually went across the river, you, you, would, you would have to go three more miles, and, and that's how far the Grand Canyon is. And while you went over the mountains, you went over Snoqualmie Pass on I-90, it's only 3,200 feet high. You're half of the height that the deepest point of the Grand Canyon is. It's over a mile deep. It's 6,000 feet deep at its deepest point. And 18 miles, which is further than from here to Everett. It's amazing. Now, let Let's use your imagination. Let's say that you are standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. We're right here. And you're looking at this ideal picture. What do you see? Let's say that instead of just admiring it, I tell you that you need to get to the opposite rim. Now what do you see? Do you see the gulf between where you are and where you need to get to? Or can you see the next step that you need to take? You see, sometimes I think what happens when God presents us with this ideal picture of what it is that we're supposed to be, where it is that we're supposed to go, all we can see is how far away it is. And it seems impossible. It seems unreachable. And so we can't see ourselves taking a step. What's the point? And God is calling you, every one of you, to something. Do you see the gulf between where you are and where you need to be, or do you see the next step that he wants you to take? See, we've been talking about the work of the Spirit in our lives. And the power of the Spirit in our lives 
is there so that we can take the next step that God calls us to. And God calls us to more than just admiration. He calls us to pursue the ideal. And I think some of us have a hard time with the idea that we would chase after something that we don't think we can ever get to in this life. But church, that is the life of the believer. Maybe you don't know this, but God calls us to pursue the ideal. 1 Peter 1 says this, But as he who called you is holy, that's God, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now there is a positional holiness that every one of us who are believers is given. Jesus Christ is holy. And when we come into relationship with God through Christ, we are credited with the holiness of Jesus. It's how we have a relationship with God. He calls us his holy people. But that is not what Peter is talking about here. He calls us to be holy in our conduct, the way that we live every single day. Anybody there yet? I mean, what is holiness? It is perfection. God himself is absolutely perfect in all his attributes, in all of his character, in all of his works. And he calls us to be holy like him. God calls us to the ideal. God calls you to pursue the ideal. And when you hear God's call to say, I want you to go after this ideal, what do you see? Do you see the gulf between where you are and where you need to be? Or can you see the next step that God is calling you? When you stand on the rim and you look across, and you hear God say, I I want you to get to the other side. I want you to get there. Do you just see the impossibility? He's not asking you to take one step to get to the ideal. He's asking you to take the next step. God is calling. Will you take the next step? Some of you, the idea of eating more together scares you to death. And you don't need to get to the point tomorrow where every day you're eating in someone else's home. 
But is there a step you can take towards that? Some of you have never gotten to the initial connection point. I mean, you come and you're here on Sunday, but, but you've never taken another step to connect at a deeper level with the body of Christ. And, and maybe for you, it's getting involved in a small group or going to a donuts class or, or, or hanging out a little longer and getting to know somebody. For some of you, it isn't, it isn't eating and it isn't fellowship. For some of you, it, it's something that's related to your character. God is calling you to, to take a step into something that you don't know how to do. And as we continue to walk through this series, whether it's looking at the life of the early church or just continuing to look at how the Holy Spirit works in the life of believers today, again and again, God is going to call you to do things that you cannot do, that are beyond your ability, that are beyond your comfort zone. And and you're going to feel like, "I, I don't know how I can get there. And I know that every one of us here, if we are listening to the Spirit today, can hear God calling. That there is a next step for us. And as you think about the next step that God wants you to take towards the ideal that he is calling you to be and do, I want to remind you that you have a helper. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. You have a helper that's in you and with you. You see, when you stand on the rim and you look at the distance between where you are and where you need to be, at the ideal that God is calling you to, you need to remember that God is not just saying, you need to find a way to get over there. No, God is saying, I have got you. I'm holding your hand. Let's go. And so today, as as you think about what God is asking you to step into, you need to hear this. God says this. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will also help you. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Our God has given us a helper in the Holy Spirit, and every one of us who knows Jesus Christ has a helper who lives in us and with us. And everything that he calls us to be and do, he will help us to do. He's not asking you to take one step to the other side. All he's asking you to do is take the next step that's right in front of you. As a church, we are not where the New Testament church was. And let's be honest, we're we're not close Uh, There are good things that God is doing in our church. But we have a long ways to go. 
And we want to continue to step into what God is calling us to be as a church. So we're going to do a very practical thing together to take a step in that direction next week. We're going to eat together. When you come next week, uh, this room won't have chairs like this. There'll be tables, and we're going to eat breakfast together. You just need to come, sit at a table, and we'll eat together. And some of you, even when I say that, you say, ooh, that's not really my jam. <laughs> I might have to sit at a table with people I don't know, and then what will I say, and what will we do? And I'm asking if you would take a step towards being the church that God calls us to be. And can we eat together for an hour and share a meal together, even if it's not our jam? Would you stand with me? As I said, this goes beyond just eating together. It obviously does. And I know that there are some of you who are facing things that you know God is asking you to step in to. Or that you are stepping into because of circumstances, things like trial and grief. Things that you don't know how to navigate. God is with you. You have a helper. And all he's asking you to do is take the next step. And he will be with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have given to every one of your children. Thank you, Spirit, for filling us, for empowering us. And we ask you to help us to be aware of your presence to be courageous because we know you're with us, holding our hand. This week, even today, as you ask us to step in to whatever it is that you're calling us to do, would you help us to do it, to follow you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, as we conclude our service, if you'd like prayer for anything, whether it's a response to this message or you want prayer for healing or for a circumstance in your life, there's some people who would love to pray with you today. They'll be up front afterwards and come forward and we'd be glad to meet you and, and pray for you. You're dismissed.